Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 87. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com, acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How have the holidays been treating you, Fuleman? It's been good. Unfortunately, as a leaf-associated individual, this means I am now injured. So, <laughs> <laughs> not actually, but that's how it's been going. How have it been for you? Yeah, it's been it's been solid. Can't really complain. Got to spend some some time with the family. Um, had some social endeavors uh, with with my friends, which is which is rare for me. Um, so that's always nice. And yeah, I mean, have to get back to reality very soon. Unfortunately, right? You can kind of yeah. At least uh, I was able to take a bit of a break from my work, but. Uh, I'm at the point where like I'm kind of excited to get back into it, actually. That's good. That's a level of enthusiasm that I do not know that most people are feeling right now. So. <laughs> I think most people are still in like, food comas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I got that tryptophan hangover or something like that. Uh, probably including the Leafs defensively, to be honest. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, like I don't... like they, I'm not actually just being glib there. I almost do wonder if there's like an element of lingering holiday spirit or something like that because the defense I is imagine gross. there might be but yeah so i mean we'll, we'll first just to give a quick preview of what we're going to talk about um this podcast we're going to talk about the least last three games the week that was um the injury bug that has hit the leafs and we're also going to do kind of a 2019 year in review for kyle dubas specifically and talk about you know how our opinions and feelings about him may or may not have changed over the past uh year and specifically over the past six months uh, with the, with the new season, but yeah, we'll start with the Leafs' last three games, which were um, an eight six win against Carolina on Monday, and then a five four win against um, the Devils and a five four loss in overtime uh, against the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Let me just make sure I have those correct. Yes, um, and the Devils' win was in overtime after a rather hilarious own goal by. Um, by Damon Severson, which was credited to our our boy William Nylander, which you know we're we're grateful for. We we don't we we take those. They don't ask how they ask how many. So exactly. Yeah. Um. Even by the standards of the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey club, the defense that they put on show this week was some of the worst that I've ever seen. It, it was now, pretty were, brutal. It was really bad. And to be clear, I think I'm kind of a connoisseur of bad defense. <laughs> because, again, I've been cheering for this team for so goddamn long. Uh, I've seen a lot of it. And the Leafs have, even in their late 90s heyday, they were bad defensively then, too. It's remarkable how this team has just not been good defensively in, like, maybe 25, 30 years. But anyway, last week was really bad in that respect. Now, they made up for it on the offensive end. They were humming all week. Uh, Austin Matthews was on absolute fire for a couple of games. But, man, I'm hoping some of this is just a residual holiday spirit, maybe, or some kind of tryptophan hangover or something like that. Um, I don't know that you can win being quite this sloppy defensively, and it's worth noting, uh, they got three points in the two games, but like they were playing New Jersey and New York for the last two, who are both very bad teams. Yeah, and I mean... When you look at the the numbers, even the shot quality numbers, like expected goals, um, the Leafs were above 50% in all three of these games. They were 54% against um, the Hurricanes, 50% against 50, like slightly above 50% against the Devils, and then 57% against the Rangers. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so you may be thinking, okay, well, the defense can't have been that bad, right? Because, or at least, you know, it wasn't so bad that it was catastrophic and prevented them from winning games or being competitive in those games. But from what I saw, I'm, I'm genuinely unsure if these expected goals against t- uh, figures accurately depict the level of gong show it was in the Leafs' defensive zone. And that's one of those things where, in small samples, I think these might not be incredibly reliable because expected goals don't account for goaltender positioning and, and skater positioning and things like that. At least mm-hmm. not in a very robust way. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Carolina game in particular, um, there was just so many very, very silly plays, so many turnovers in really dangerous spots that led to incredibly high-danger scoring chances on, like, these counter-rush plays, right? And I, I think mm-hmm. I've talked about this a couple times where if you turn the puck over just as you're trying to leave the offensive zone, that's super damaging because almost none of your players are in position to actually recover from that. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like that happened with extreme regularity um, over the past three games. And it, it must be said the Leafs' goaltending was, was also not strong over the last three games. I don't think it was the best two games of Freddie Anderson's career, and Michael Hutchinson is Michael Hutchinson. Yeah, that's accurate. They didn't get great goaltending in any of these games. And... I mean, realistically, if they had last night, like if they had the level of goaltending that Georgiev seemed to be giving the New York Rangers, the Leafs probably win. But still, it's like you would hope for a little bit more than just exploding glass cannon against a team as bad, again, as the Rangers. Now, they do have Artemi Panarin, and he was quite good. He had one pass to uh, Ryan Strom that kind of carved the Leafs up defensively like a turkey. And while it also involved some pronounced defensive failures, I also remember thinking, you know, if a Leaf does that, we're just talking about how great a pass it was. Yeah. So, you know, you don't want to fall totally into the trap of like the Leafs are the protagonists of reality and every goal is what they did or didn't do. But (laughs) they were not doing a lot of defense at any point this week. And... Sheldon keeps said after the game against the Devils, like, I'm going to basically just move on. Like, I think he just completely wrote that off because that might have been the logical reaction. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you got to kind of whip yourselves into shape a little bit just to get back to merely below average defense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's just, it was stunning the level of incompetence that, that you saw, I mean, there's some basic stuff that just doesn't happen. And it's not just on the defenders themselves. The forwards are often negligent about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something Ian Tulak has been uh, banging on about. But when a defenseman pitches for the Leafs, often the the F3, uh, last forward to enter the zone, just does not do their job of covering for them. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it makes it look like, oh, it's a bad pinch. But in reality, they should have had support there. And that happens a fair bit with, with the Leafs, and a lot of different players are culpable. Mm-hmm. Um, the the total hockey thing has also kind of reared its head a couple times, where you've had um, turnovers by the high, the high forward in the offensive zone, who then has to essentially play as a defenseman, and they're not good at that. And I yeah. think some of those turnovers, uh, the captain one against the Devils that went the other way for a breakaway goal, um, 
comes to mind because a defender probably doesn't make the same play or try to make the same play that Kapanen does there. Forwards are used to having support behind them. They're used to taking mm-hmm. more risk, and you want to enable them to take more risks, right, because they're skilled. Certainly when you're the Leafs and you have a bevy of talented forwards, you want them to be enabled, right? That's something that people were criticizing, like Babcock, um, for not mm-hmm. doing rightly or wrongly. Um, but yeah, they have to pick their spots, and the constant exchanging of Leafs forwards and defensemen mean that you're, you're asking quite a bit from the of the judgment of these forwards um because they're being put in positions where they're not often in and muscle memory is maybe to take a risk when they shouldn't because the downside is too high um now that said like it's very clear that this offensive system has its perks as well right like we've been mm-hmm. carping about the least defense but uh their offense for the past few games uh, certainly when you look at the goal scored has been phenomenal and um it looks pretty solid when you look at the expected goals as well yeah, like th- this team can score again, um, and and as we've said before, there was no excuse for them not to be able to do so. But yeah, I, I mean, the aggression with which we're seeing the defense pinch, you know, the activated defense, so to speak, it does require a level of responsibility on the part of the forwards and a level of awareness. Like the whole thing about this, it's not quite all the way to positionless hockey, but there's certainly more blurring of forward and defense responsibilities. Well, then your forwards have to be better able to handle defense responsibilities. You know, if they're going to start doing things that are outside their typical positional responsibilities, then that's fine. But, you know, I'm hoping that some of that is just learning curve. You know, they are still being asked to do different things. And I am aware, you know, Keith has tried to impose systemic changes in five weeks while the season was going on. And, you know, he's won around three quarters of his games. So that's certainly impressive. But I think as impressive as it was defensively, like a lot of what can go wrong in this system was on display this week. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, I guess another theme that we can discuss that, we, um, that emerged from the, from this week is, kind of the reshuffling of the least top four forwards. Mm-hmm. So for the longest time, and we talked about this last week, um, where we, we've had Tavares, um, Tavares Marner and Matthews Nylander. And mm-hmm. that was switched up for, for the first time in a while, which I don't mind in principle. I just don't really expect it to be much better than the alternative. Um, yeah. And a lot of people were kind of doing laps about like, Marner Matthews as a concept mm-hmm. on the uh, after the afternoon game on Monday, because where they know, were Martin bonkers, they were points. so good that game. And I'm like, and, and sorry, this is just an aside, but I saw a bunch of people uh, suddenly start getting very excited to quote Mitch Marner's points per game pace. Like <laughs> right after he has five points, everyone's like, "See, it actually is sustainable for him to be, you know, producing more than he was last year." And it's like, well, he's not going to get. Five points a game, probably, no matter how good the chemistry is with Matthews. But anyway, um, I'm open to this. I think Nylander and Tavares looked pretty pretty good together last night in a lot of respects. Um, and Matthews seems to be uh, really kind of on fire lately, frankly. He's you know rocketed up to second in the NHL in goals. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him pass David Pasternak pretty soon the way he's going. But, you know, I, I do 
still kind of wonder, it's like, is this really changing that much? Like, Matthew's Nylander works, despite what a lot of people will tell you. And Tavares Marner works. And I expect flipping them is going to lead to two more combinations that also work, which is fine. I just don't know that it's going to be a huge gain the way that some people seem to think it is. Yeah, that's kind of my thoughts, right? Where if you go on, um, you know, other fan sites like Reddit and stuff, people are like, I can't believe Babcock never tried putting Matthews and Marner together. Like, that's so stupid. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, you know, it's not like they were playing with chopped liver. Marner was playing with John Tavares, mm. you know, like John Tavares, the guy <laughs> who is literally famous for elevating his linemates. Yeah, and you know, right. Tavares I think had a career. There is here, no bad combination. Yeah, yeah. There's no bad yeah. combination of those four players. You could even put, sure, move Matthews to the wing and put um, Tavares and Matthews together and put Nylander and Marner together. That will work too. They are four, yeah, incredibly probably. good forwards. I think any combination of them works. And yeah, I've liked what I've seen from from Tavares or yeah from Tavares and Nylander, um, especially with Mikheyev on that line. And we'll talk about his injury. It's rather a gruesome injury uh, a little bit later. Mm-hmm. That's a line that works in theory and in practice. They're probably our best possession winger and our best possession center. It's, no, it's not shocking that uh, they're going to kind of dominate the puck, especially when paired with an elite complementary player like Mikheyev. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so... so um, you know, there's... Yeah, it's okay. Oh, no, I, I, I was just going to say, like, it's... That's a change that has been made uh, by Keith. I don't know... How long it's going to last? Do you have any, I guess, opinions on that? I'm fine with it, you know, right? As long as it works, mm-hmm. I, I am skeptical that there's a huge amount of added value to be captured there. But it does also occur to me that one, Keith is just more willing to blend his lines, yes. especially in game. You know, he will make changes constantly. He'll put out kind of specialty lines in specific situations where he likes to overload with star forwards. Not that Mike Babcock never did that, but Keith seems to do it a lot more. And so I think there's going to be more fluidity. Yeah, you know, he absolutely does. Than we, we were used to saying. Yeah. And so, you know, all of that said, I'm fine to uh, to keep attempting that. I, I think it, it is working as far as it goes so far. I just, again, you know, I'm a little skeptical that it's going to lead to some sort of really added sustained value. Or if it does... We've got basically the two best lines in the league, so good for us. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, with Keith experimenting, I mean, I'm generally a fan of that, right? We both talked before about how mm-hmm. we were frustrated with Babcock's uh, unwillingness to experiment, even when he had a lot of potentially time to do so, when they were playing a ton of dead rubbers at the towards the tail end of right. last season. Mm-hmm. So it, it's... Um, I, that's a change I'm happy that, that Keith has made. If we look more at his like ice time decisions, you can kind of get more of a, a sense of what he values. Um, on the defense side, basically the biggest change has been uh, using Justin Hall, and that's come essentially at the expense of Cody Ceci. Mm-hmm. And I think we are both all for that. Um, we were Yeah, that's a yeah, very good we've decision. D- we've, <laughs> we've, we've discussed before that we were too low on Hall, in part because we put a strong... Uh, strong prior on Mike Babcock's opinion of him and Mike Babcock's opinion of him uh, was clearly not very high and clearly I think much lower than it should have been uh, because for whatever you think Mm -hmm. of Hall um, he's clearly at least an NHL defenseman yeah that's like I think pretty clearly established at this point so 
and I think one thing that's worth noting um, is that Travis Dermott has not really seen a huge increase in time on ice. He had a bit of an uptick when Keefe initially took the job, and now he's come down to essentially the same usage that he's always had. He's on, he's on the third pair. And he's on the third pair with CeCe, um, which is, is it better or worse than being on the third pair with Polak? <laughs> yeah, that's an open question. You know, uh, I have to say, and I see a lot of people, you know, Travis Dermott has a very vocal fan base online, uh, especially among people who are fond of things like Corsi. And that's justified. He was kind of our sole hope on defense for a while there. And, you know, he's still young and he's still improving, but I can't say that I've seen a ton from him lately that makes me think, you really got to promote this guy. He's really kind of questionable in some ways in his own zone to me. You know, like just some of the decision-making is pretty wild. Now, Dermot also has the capacity to make unusually good plays. You know, he's very gifted physically in terms of, you know, his agility and his strength on the skates. And so there is a lot to recommend him, but, like, I'm not seeing, the, like, the case that he's made himself necessary to be moved up to the second pairing. And, you know, I noticed we didn't see that last night even with Jake Muzzin out. We saw Martin Marincin and Justin Hall. So I would be curious to kind of see how that develops going forward. And I think Keefe is still on the point where not a lot of people are going to criticize him. And, you know, I, to be clear, I think he's been doing quite a good job. But, like, he doesn't seem all that interested in promoting Dermot the way a lot of people would like to see. Yeah, it just I does don't, not seem to be happening. And I don't blame him for that either, right? Like, uh, I guess we've talked about maybe one of our flaws is agreeing with coaches too much or, or deferring to coaches too much. Um, so I'm trying to be mm-hmm. cognizant of that. But at the same time, when a couple coaches are kind of coming to the same conclusion about a player, I tend to think that there's something there. Yeah, like I, I'm starting to worry that Travis Dermott might be the kind of guy who puts up terrific third-pairing stats. And people say, oh, he's underplayed, he's underplayed, he's underplayed, move him up the lineup. And it just never happens because his flaws are glaring enough that teams don't really trust him. I mean, you can think of a 100 defensemen like that. And to be clear, Dermot, I think, is better than just like your fancy stat superstars of days past, but... Yeah, I, I'm starting to sort of mentally lower the ceiling on him a little bit. Like, I, yeah. I just, I don't know that I'm seeing it really happening anytime soon. Yeah, and I'm. it's worth noting that his play driving numbers this year, the context-adjusted ones, have not been great either. Um, he's actually second from the bottom in the Leafs in, in Corsi 4 RAPM, uh, just behind Cody Cece, funnily enough. And he's about average in XG RAPM, but... The thing is, the farther away we get from that rookie year of his, that partial year where he came up and just lit it up in shelter third-pairing usage, he actually, Mm -hmm. when you look at the numbers, they haven't been as strong since. And I did an article about this Mm. maybe a month ago. And that was something, that was the thing that leapt out at me, where like, I, I thought his first two years were more similar than they were. And they were very similar in a lot of ways, in particular the usage, except he just didn't get quite as good results. And this is kind of continuing right. that trend a little bit, right? So, you know, at a certain point, you you have to say, well, 
he he's a third pair guy and he might not even necessarily be a third pair guy who is absolutely destroying the competition right his, his first year he had like a league leading level of like rapm in, in both Corsi and expected goals last year uh above average in Corsi, average and expected goals this year below average in Corsi, uh average and expected goals mm-hmm. so you know that that's starting to paint a bit of a picture if you, if you just look at those three um seasons you would think okay well the first one seems like a bit of an anomaly yeah, he was really performing very well. And again, a, a lot of those really good results under Mike Babcock, you know, say what you will about him, he knew how to protect the third pairing. And, you know, he often used some of those players very gently. The, the pairing of uh, Dermot and Ozaganov, uh, as long as it lasted, was used really, really carefully. You know, like they weren't getting what seemed like any kind of tough minutes whatsoever. You know, now, now that said... He just turned 23, so I can certainly believe that he's still going to keep growing into his game and that there's a lot ahead of him. And, you know, you'd rather bet on a guy with his many physical gifts to put it, put it together. And absolutely, there's no harm in keeping him on a third pairing and hoping he develops and shows more. It's just going into this next contract, I don't think that he's done anything to show that he's going to get like a big raise. Yeah, and I I will be judging this contract quite harshly, because yeah, there, there's I, I I guess I'm just gonna repeat you here. There's nothing that shows he should get a lot of money. He hasn't yeah, actually. Uh, this, I mean, this, this sounds harsher than I mean it, but he hasn't actually done anything in the NHL. Yeah, he's been a good third pairing defenseman who gets a modest amount of points by virtue of being on a high scoring team, and that's it. And, you know, that's fine. We can hope for more than that. But that shouldn't correlate with any kind of massive payday, especially for an RFA, especially for a mid-tier RFA. Because, you know, when is a team given an offer sheet to any such player as that in the past 10 years? So, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I don't want to sound like we're just totally raining on him because, you know, he has his pros and his cons. It's just... Uh, the hope was for him to be more than just good third pairing guy, and right now we're not seeing it. You know, right now it's not there. Yeah. And, and for for what it's worth, I don't think you can also really blame this on on Cody Cece. Hmm. Um. I I mean I don't think Cece is a good defenseman by any means. But no. You know it's. If you're he, he, again, he's he's succeeded with Roman Polak. I don't think CC is much worse than Roman <laughs> Polak, if at all. I don't think CC is much. I have worse a hard than time Igor figuring out how good I actually think CC is, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's fair, right? Like, it's he's a hard guy to calibrate for because his ability to read the game is just so poor. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's stunning. For what it's worth, I can see why teams would have talked themselves into him when he mm-hmm. was a much younger player. Because you can totally convince yourself, okay, he actually has a lot going for him in terms of some of his abilities. And once he learns to read the game a little bit better, he could be pretty good. And that just never happened. And so the result is a guy who, you know, can be on a certainly passable third pairing. Like, I don't think Cody Cece's washing out of the league or anything like that. 
but if you're paying more than league minimum for what potential he supposedly still has to keep getting better, I think you're making a mistake. So we'll see how that resolves itself. It's it's interesting that um, I think kind of the Occam's razor of CC is that the Leafs genuinely thought he's better than their other alternatives. But from how we've seen the how Dubas Leafs draft, I could not think of a less Dubas player than Cody CC. And not just because of the analytics and the core scene or whatnot, but just as a player archetype. He's the opposite of Rasmus Sandin. He has mm-hmm. all the physical tools, but he does not read the game well. Whereas, for example, for, for someone like Sandin, every kind of scouting report on him is he is not the most athletically gifted or the most skilled hockey player, but he sees everything and he understands where people are and he understands what how the plays are going to develop and that's what makes him a good player. Right? And mm-hmm. when we, t- we did our kind of draft review... Uh, this past June, the common thread between all the players or almost all the players that the Leafs drafted is that their scouting report kind of had them as, you know, pretty heady player, understands the game, knows how plays will develop, things like that. There were very few mm-hmm. all-tool, no-toolbox guys. Yeah, it, it was very pronounced anytime you started looking at it in any kind of macro sense. You were like, okay, uh, once again, we've decided to draft a supposedly quite smart, uh, less maybe physically super skilled, usually shorter than 6'1 player. And that was like every single time. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Cody CC is not those things at all. And the dynamics of the Leafs' decision-making in this offseason is, you know, something we'll probably talk about a bit under the Dubas thing. But I do wonder a little bit if that was his decision, or if he just kind of accepted that, one, he's doing the CC for Zaitsev thing anyway to get out of the contract, and then once he had him, he was kind of willing to go along with perhaps what other members of the front office might have preferred. And, you know, obviously I'm thinking of Mike Babcock here, but I don't know. That's speculative. Yeah, yeah, it's, there's a lot we don't know about that, about that sort of, um, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. The last thing I wanted to touch on um, about the time on ice stuff before we talk about Dubas's year is is on the forward side because there's a mildly concerning trend, or there's two mildly concerning trends, I would say. Number one is mm-hmm. the ice time of our top three forwards, Marner, uh, Tavares, and Matthews. Are, it's skyrocketing. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's good in a way because it's like, okay, you're using your best players more. And I, I see some people like, um, pithily tweeting this. It's like, oh, wow, Babcock's such an idiot. He didn't figure out just to play his players more. And it's like, I think he, I don't, look, I'm loath to give Mike Babcock a ton of credit um, given what's come out about him and his the methods he used because I could not disagree more with those. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, I, I don't think that he failed to figure out, oh, playing my good players more will help. I think it was a conscious decision to keep them rested. Right? Yes, and I do wonder if the level of desperation around the team, in terms of, oh shit, we could really miss the playoffs, which is the situation that Keith came into, does that encourage it as much as anything? Or does, you know, the fact that for a lot of the last couple of years, the Mike Babcock Leafs were kind of just cruising in the direction of a playoff spot. So I wonder if that also has some relevance, even above and beyond the differences in their style. But yeah, you know, I think Mike Babcock probably could have thought, hey, is it good to play my star players? Yeah, 
probably. So yeah, I, the, the worry there is always, you know, you don't want him to burn out, right? And we, we talk about this in the context of uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl in Edmonton who are asked, and, and to be clear, what the Leafs are asking of their top forwards is not the same as what Edmonton is asking of their top two forwards. Um, but like we comment on that and saying, you know, that doesn't seem sustainable. It's hard to play 25 minutes a night as a forward um, and have everything kind of be dependent on you. Cause, and you're, you're pushing all that time. You're, you're not really taking, you know, shifts off. Um, but yeah, so I guess I don't have, I struggle to have strong opinions on this because I don't understand the science of, of rest and of what's the optimal amount of time to play. And I, I think there's a lot that goes into it that we're not seeing. There's behind the scenes stuff. The Leafs, from all the reports, have a very robust sports science team um, that should be tracking kind of players' fatigue throughout the year, and they should be able to make adjustments based on that. Um, but yeah, I think it's just something worth noting. Do you have any particular thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, right now it seems to be working just fine. All of our star forwards are playing pretty well, I think. Mm-hmm. They look like they've all kind of settled in nicely. The question will be what happens down the line when we maybe start seeing the effects of this fatigue. You know, if there's a period of a couple of weeks where Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner or whoever looks really drained, and, you know, we, we would probably assume nagging injury in that situation when you see that kind of thing. But, you know, the, the question is, is he going to have to pay the piper in terms of some bad games down the stretch where they don't have it to the extent that they might? Maybe he won't. Maybe it was all just pure profit in terms of these guys were really being underutilized. Yeah. And, you know, again, in fairness, he's trying to salvage a playoff spot for a team that damn near played itself out in the first uh, six weeks of the season. Yeah. So there is a, a level of desperation there that he he's mostly kind of wrote out now. The Leafs are in an improving position. But yeah, you know, that's that's something that he has to balance. It's also worth noting that the majority of this minutes increase has not been at 5-on-5, five five, right? If you, if you look at um, last year, uh, among forwards, John Tavares was the 19th most played forward per game. Uh, Matthews was 29th. Marner was 32nd. Mm-hmm. Right? So they, they were played like top-level forwards, um, but they weren't played as much on the power play, right? So... If those are easier minutes on the body, then you can say, okay, you know, we, these are like cheap minutes that drastically improve our chances to win and to score, but don't actually take a lot out of a player. And if that's the case, then mm-hmm. it's like, as you said, it's a free lunch. You should you should do that. Yeah. And, you know, even we said we're like, you know, you should play the top unit longer than you were. Yes, absolutely. Like that was one of the things where I think the criticism of Mike Babcock was pretty unified for a long time and probably right. So, yeah, you know, I do think that there's some room there to expand. And I don't blame him for doing it. I also think that he's done certain things, and this is maybe relevant to the decision to put Matthews with Marner. I think he's kind of told Matthews, like, you are one of my guys. You are one of my horses. I'm going to need you to do more than you've been doing. And, you know, he wants him to feel relied on. He also wants him to be happy. And so I do wonder if there's just a personal component in terms of I'll put Marner with him because it will make him feel good. And if he feels good, he'll play better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just to put a bow on that, like, 
and to clarify what I said, like the these players are also playing more at even strength, but a lot of it is also power play, right? Um, they're probably playing mm-hmm. a minute and a half more each under Keefe uh, at even strength per game than they did under Babcock, which is a pretty significant amount when you're already like the most played forwards. And then they're also playing an additional like mm-hmm. minute or two uh, on the power play, right? So only like 50% of this uh, uptick in, in, in playing time is 5v5. So, mm-hmm. so it's worth keeping that in mind. Right. Um, I guess the other one that we want to note, and I guess the, the player who was conspicuously absent when we talked about the least best forwards is William Nylander because his ice time has dropped under Keefe. And that is yes, concerning a little bit. Um, for one, because you can make... And I don't know exactly how I'd, I'd feel about this argument, but I think you can make a very good argument that William Nylander is the third best of those Leafs, especially at 5-on-5. Five five. And he might be higher than that. He's a very good 5-on-5 five five player. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean that to, like, denigrate um, Mitch Marner, who's, I think, the player he would whose place he would take in that in that top three at 5-on-5, five five, who's also a very good 5-on-5 five five player. It's just Nylander is very, very good there. Um, he's the Leafs' possession, yeah. best possession winger, perhaps best possession player, period, has been for the past two years. Um you know, that, that goes a long, long way. For all the talk about how he can be defensively spacey, he can be, his skill set means that the Leafs don't have to play in the defensive zone very much. Because if you get him the puck yeah. in the defensive zone, for the most part, he gets it out. And the puck has started going in for him. Yes. Which yeah, is, he's, he's you know, getting obviously puck always a positive thing. And, you know, this is just an aside. I don't want to go on at any great length about the Nylander Wars, because I feel like we've done that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. But... One of my cousins actually bet his stepdad that Nylander would have 35 points by Valentine's Day. Like, this this uncle was so convinced. Like, there's no way that Nylander is going to produce anything. He's an empty player that he was willing to take that. Well, Nylander has 33 points already. You know, I think that there were... The level of underrating of him that goes on is kind of remarkable because I think you can genuinely argue he was the second best forward on the team in the year so far. And I am including that period under Babcock where Tavares and Marner were alternately injured and not as effective as they should have been. But, like, Nylander's having a good year. A really Leads good year. the Leafs in uh, expected goals RIPM, second in Corsi RIPM. Uh, I think, I haven't checked recently, but he's in the top 40 or so in the league in 5v5 scoring rate. Yeah, like and the you know the puck is going in for him, which it was overdue to do, and yeah, you know, even if you just want to use the basics of on pace, you know, he's set to have a thirty goal season. That's good. I like that. You know, I, I I don't know what else you can say there. So I you know I do think, I hope that we're gonna keep seeing more of William Nylander instead of you know these little lulls that he goes into. You know, I think. Keith has decided that Matthews and Marner are the guys that he really wants to play the most when he can, and that's fine. But Nylander is at least, he's definitely part of that big four forwards, and he should be played as such, I think. Just like, if you're going to ride your horses, he's one of the guys you should be relying on, because he's really good. So. Yep, I I mean, I agree with that uh, completely. Sorry, just to uh, correct myself, he is... Uh, 74th and 5v5 scoring. The bum. Well. Um, uh, on, on a rate basis. 
Um, that's also with a very, very light uh, time on ice requirement, like only like 100 minutes or so I'm setting the requirement. So you get some people like, let me just pull a name out of random here. You get Eric Halla up there who's played uh, 200 minutes the entire year, right? So, it's, I mean, yeah, not not really. For a while, that. Jason Spezza was like lapping the field in P60. I don't know if he still is, but it's because he had points in extremely limited minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, P60, yeah. I mean, it is exactly so, what it says it is, but it's not a list of, like, these are the best scorers. I think, like, Nick Bonino is still, like, stupidly high on this list. He's 12th in the league in 5v5 scoring per, uh, per minute, ahead, right ahead of <laughs> Leon Dreisaitl. And it's like, yeah, you just, you just have those. One for, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Things happen. Exactly. Uh, but, but, yeah, anyway. So, I, I guess we should also talk about briefly about the injuries. Yeah, which have yeah. Which kind of devastated this lineup. Uh, there's no, there's only so much to say. Uh, Ilya Mikhaev took a skate in the hand. He got tendons and an artery that were cut. That's obviously very bad. It looks like he got timely medical attention, and the expectation is full recovery, but it's going to be at least 90 days. Yeah, we, we are not the doctors, but they, it doesn't seem good if your yeah. like, wrist is sliced open. Yeah, you know, I'm no scientist, but eh, that was bad. There was also a lot of blood. That was yeah. pretty glaring. That was really bad. Uh, and so, it sounds like I don't think we're going to see Mikhaev again this season. Like, I know that they say 90 days, which would be end of March. And I would love for it to come together like that. But the way that it's phrased, it sounds like they're like, yeah, we'll reevaluate down the line. But this is going to be a long recovery. And, you know, it really sucks. He's been maybe the best story of this Leafs season. He's been a really good player. He gives us another solid left wing on all those lines that have great centers and right wingers. And, you know, uh, it sucks. It really does just suck to see that for a guy who was having a breakout year. I I certainly think that he and the Leafs are going to be talking extension. And, you know, the Leafs are going to embrace a bit of injury risk there. But I'm sure they would really like to keep him. But I think that we may have seen the last of him in a Leafy uniform for this season. Yeah. Um, it is a real shame. As you said, I, I agree with you. I think he's basically gone the rest of the year unless we make a very deep run. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, reevaluated in 90, day, 90 days does not mean back in 90 days. No, right? that, that's, it does that's, not. And that's the that's crux pretty of bad. it. <laughs> um, and it's a shame, not just for him personally, although obviously that, that does suck, and I hope. We, we obviously hope he recovers um, recovers well and is able to, you know, enjoy uh, the, the painful process of rehabbing as much as that is possible. But um, mm-hmm. he's turned into an incredibly useful player for the Leafs as a similar kind of mold to Zach Hyman, right? Where you can play him mm-hmm. on the uh, as a complementary player to two stars, and he will do the little things that enable the stars to do what they do well. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, and there's a level of skill there, which is maybe more than I thought that there was. Like, I, I just remember that line with Mikhaev and Hyman for a period, uh, wigging John Tavares. That was when Tavares started to look good again with two guys who are conventionally considered more forechecky, grindy types. I think that was a, a factor in me kind of upping my opinion of Mikhaev. Like, he can be a component of a really good line. Absolutely. I really think so. I think he should be the the third best player on it, but he's he's shown a lot for a guy who was not all that discussed in the summertime after he got signed, it felt like. 
Yes. So yeah. And I think we do a disservice to players like Mikhaev and and Hyman when we talk about you know their their lack of skill, but because I think they are skilled, it's just in a different way, right? Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's a skill to be able to be focused and engaged in the game 100% of the time. I know when I'm at work, I'm not engaged 100% of the time, right? And I think that's true of everyone. And that's true of hockey players too. But mm-hmm. what they do in terms of their consistent effort. And also, I think their physical fitness, because that enables their, you know, all-out effort. It, it's very commendable. And, yeah, it it's very, very useful as a skill. I was looking forward to seeing more of the Tavares, Nylander, Mikheyev line. Um, I think that was mm-hmm. going to be a line that was going to kick ass. In the, in the brief time we had with them, they looked exactly like I thought they would look. And I was very encouraged mm-hmm. by it. Um, it's a shame we won't get to see more. I hope Mikheyev is a Leaf long-term. Um Keeping him will be a bit tight. We can talk about that in future podcasts when we have a better idea of, I guess, our cap situation and any potential moves. Um, because you may need to move another mid-priced forward to facilitate that, right? Mm-hmm. So, I guess uh, we will see. But it was a good move by Kyle Dubas, and I guess that's a good uh, transition to talking about Kyle Dubas and what he's done in 2019. Yes, so we were just going to go through this basically month by month. Some months, Cal Dubas did a lot more than other things, but that's okay. And just talk about what he did and how our opinions of it have evolved. So in January, uh, he signs Trevor Moore for two years at 775. I think that that's an eminently good contract. You know, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, no, no disagreements. Yeah, uh, so, so you know... The, Get cheap depth that you can lock up for variable salary. That's fine. Even though Trevor Moore has unfortunately been injured this year. Speaking of our many injuries, he's currently suffering from a concussion. But yeah, very low risk for the team. Very good for everyone. Uh, more significantly, he traded Carl Grundstrom and Sean Jersey to the Los Angeles Kings for Jake Muzzin. So Jake Muzzin is actually also injured. He's got a broken foot right now from blocking a shot. But I think Jake Muzzin has been the best defensive defenseman on the team since he was acquired, kind of as expected. Like, I think he's been as advertised. And I think that trade holds up, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it was a very good trade. We spoke very positively uh, about it when it happened. And yeah, it was, I think it, it looked just as good as, in hindsight. Dursey and Grunstrom are, are good prospects. Um I think Grunstrom's mm-hmm. already, he's made the NHL, essentially. I think it's it's the Kings, but still. Yeah, he's in the AHL uh, right now, but he's been kind of up and down. And I, I get the strong impression that it's eventually going to become full-time. So, yeah. Sean Jersey, I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, I think the Leafs were certainly correct in that they basically said there's no way in hell we're talking about Rasmus Sandin with anybody. And mm-hmm. rightly so. But, uh, yeah, I am certainly happy for... The price we paid to get Jake Muzzin for a year plus one. And, you know, maybe there's an extension going forward. I really hope that he's uh, recovering now, not just from the broken foot that he suffered, but from what looked like maybe some other lingering issues that he might have been going through. He's a very good player, and he gives an element that we don't have a lot of on this team. I think that Dubas probably did not get enough credit for how good the Jake Muzzin trade was, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, people were, and people are, have been saying, oh, you know, Muzzin ha- hasn't looked that great this year. He is the only Leafs defender who can defend. 
Yeah. Right? You know, like, like I'm, warts I'm and all, I'm sorry, but we don't have people who do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to absolve him of basically all of his other sins. And he does have some. Like, he, he's not he is not an amazing fit for what Sheldon Keefe wants to do offensively because he, he's quite kind of prototypical in how he likes to behave in the offensive zone. He likes to stay in one spot and uh, clap bombs, baby. Uh, most of them don't do anything, but <laughs> yeah, you know that that's that's a, if he if he was you know Chris Letang offensively, then well, you know he'd basically be a Norris winner. Yeah, so you know you take the good with the bad, but he definitely provides uh, a level of sandpaper first of all if you care about that, but a level of defensive prudence that is not <laughs> not all that common on this roster. So yeah, I, I think that that trade looks good then and it looks good now. Whole, yeah, and well. he is—he is such a kind of consistent track record that his XG numbers, I think, this year are not amazing. I, I do agree that he hasn't mm-hmm. looked at his best, but he—he's far from the problem defensively, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I think you know we don't have to spend too much time on that deal because I think it's, it's pretty common. The next one will probably be a bit more um, controversial. In February, uh, Kyle Dubas made a pretty big move. He traded Parland home to the Winnipeg Jets for Nick Patan. <laughs> A franchise-altering trade. Yeah, uh, that trade was fine. Paul yeah, Lindholm I, is actually... Uh, he's with the Boston Bruins now, so he didn't mm-hmm. watch out of the NHL the way he could have. You know, like, Lindholm was the most anonymous guy imaginable in terms of how he played. He was a responsible defensive center who was used defensively. He has, like, no offensive flair whatsoever. He's very much the kind of center where it's like, son, it didn't forget it. Like, you put out a Parlintome shift, and by the time the shift ends, you will probably have already forgotten what happened, because nothing really did. Um, and, you know, Nick Patan is, like, probably a quadruple A player. But yeah, he, like, I mean, he's, I like Patan more than... He's passable in the NHL. Yeah, I like Patan more than yeah. most. Um, second in the Leafs at RIPM, if you ignore the time on ice cutoff. Just saying. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, just I, crushing it in limited minutes. I think he, I think he's been good for whatever reason. Uh, the Leafs seem to prefer other depth guys over him. I'm not going to make a claim to be like, oh, they are definitely making the wrong decision there. It's, I think, it, you know, six of one, a half dozen of another, right? Um, yeah. So I think that, that's it. a fine trade. That's, yeah, I mean, no, it, it, it's, it's a solid trade. We've talked about it longer than it needs to be talked about. <laughs> yeah, I definitely prefer Patan to, to Lindholm. Okay, the actual big move he made in February. He signed uh, Austin Matthews to an extension for five years uh, and $11.634 million per year. This was controversial mm-hmm. at the time. I think we were both kind of squeamish about it um, because we're like, man, he's he's really good. He's basically without peer offensively, you know, besides Connor McDavid. But you were really hoping we could get a bit more in terms of term for the dollar amount that we gave up. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in terms of how this has changed... Matthews has continued to develop. He's a wonderful, wonderful player. I think you can make a much better case this year than last year that he is actually our best player. Um, yes, I think he's coming into his own. I think he's certainly respect. been the least best player this year when you look at the year mm-hmm. in totality. Tavares has come on strong recently. Um, but they're, they're you know, of similar effectiveness, I think, going forward, uh, at least this season. Uh, we would expect Matthews to kind of usurp that crown as, as Tavares ages out of his prime. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like... I guess this is a tough one to evaluate. I don't think it's spectacular value relative to what other players got, like Jack Eichel, for example. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you kind of... It's hard to play hardball with Austin Matthews. He is the crown jewel of your franchise. 
Yeah. The question with Austin Matthews is what were they going to do instead? And my opinion on it, which is still basically the same, is that they kind of folded too early. Maybe it was some kind of leftover angst over how the Nylander contract negotiation had gone, and which had really kind of spiraled out of control. Maybe it was he didn't want to have to deal with uh, the Mitch Marner extension at the same time. I, I don't think we captured any special value here. And that's in the sense of, like other big RFA deals do, Austin Matthews as a player is phenomenal. He's not that far from being worth it, in my opinion. Like, I'm really, really glad to have him. I'm just thinking, it seems like other GMs generally get more excess value on these kind of big RFA deals, and maybe Matthews just was not going to accept that. But we didn't get that added value. That said, if you're going to overpay anybody, overpay Austin Matthews. Because he's so good, he'll kind of be worth it regardless. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he's basically a lock to be um, in and around the top 15, 20 in terms of point scoring rate at 5 on 5. Very good on the power play. His possession game and his play driving ability has has helped has certainly improved especially uh on defense when he's played with either Nylander or Marner I'm quite confident that he can be the anchor of a line that is like 55% xg and higher in goals because he's such a singular shooting talent um Mm -hmm. there's still like a mild concern with his shot locations this year uh that hasn't been really helped under Keefe I don't think and that's kind of by design with the offensive system I still intuitively feel like I want him closer to the net more as opposed to being the guy to pop out high. Uh, he's still dangerous from out there, but he is just so much more dangerous from close by. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you're, you're pointing out zits on a supermodel, really. it's yeah. he, he's, he's a wonderful player. Uh, we're lucky to have mm-hmm. him. He's the most important part of our rebuild. Yeah, that's unequivocally true. So, yeah, I'll say, like, I don't think that that's, like, an A-plus performance from Kyle Dubas. No, certainly not. But, but you know, it's it's tough, and the player is the kind of player that you go along with overpaying if you have to. So, yeah. Um, March, he just basically signed some people to ELCs. I don't think that we need to make a huge deal out of that just because the decision to sign a guy in your organization to an entry-level contract it's not a huge thing. You can kind of do it whatever. <laughs> um, so we'll jump ahead to April. And really what happened in April was the Leafs got knocked out of the playoffs, as I'm sure you all painfully remember. And I've wondered more in hindsight if given a free hand, Dubas would have fired Mike Babcock there. I was skeptical in the beginning to think that Shanahan was actively preventing Dubas from doing that, and it is odd to me that you don't let your GM make those kind of decisions. But I also think that it seems clear that Dubas wanted Sheldon Keep to be his head coach. He said as much several years ago when uh, Dubas was only an assistant GM, and that press conference where he did not explicitly prop up Badcock's job security for a couple weeks. I think that may actually have meant something, as everyone thought it did. Yeah, I agreed on, on all counts. Yeah, so anyway, uh, all that adds up to, I think we all kind of wish that Dubas had fired Babcock then, 
in hindsight. It knowing knowing how it turns out, yes. I, at the time, yeah. I didn't think Babcock did, deserved to be fired based on his performance as a coach. Um, and I still stand by that. I don't think he deserved to be fired by his performance as a coach, unless it, they thought it was foreseeable that the team was going to basically like roll over and die in the first two months of this year. Yeah, I I do think it's worth saying, you know, we've had our mea culpas on Babcock, but mm-hmm. like the performance this year was much worse than it was in years prior. And, you know, I think the people who wanted him fired were correct and they were right to want him to do so. And knowing what we know now, I definitely wanted him fired earlier. But at the same time, there was more of a case to keep him numbers-wise, performance-wise for a while. Um, and at that time. So, you know, I think that's defensible. I don't, you know, we can't really evaluate Dubas either way if we're not sure that he had the authority to actually make this decision. You know, yeah. should implies can, so, you know. Yeah. Um, in May, he signed Ilya Mikhaev for one year at 925. Uh, we've talked about that. Obviously, that's a terrific kind of free wallet signing. Yep. Maybe the best of the ones that we've had, and... That's exactly the kind of move I wanted to make, so good for him. Yes, very good move. Um, so moving on to June, he made six selections in the 2019 NHL entry draft, including Nick Robertson, 53rd overall, and that's probably the the most important one. Um, no one else has really um, st- looked amazing since then uh, or has done anything mm-hmm. particularly notable, but Robertson has lit up the OHL and um, he's performing well with the World Juniors, you know, uh, which are going on right now as well. So, neither of us are draft experts. We, we tended to like this draft, but it'll take years to see how that actually pans out. Robertson certainly looks like a very good pick. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the best thing you can say is that if you redid the draft um, now, six months later, uh, Robertson would go notably higher. I've heard some people say he would creep into the back of the first round. He would certainly be gone by 53rd. And so, in terms of early returns on a second-round pick, very nice. Yep. And then the other big move was uh, trading Patrick Marlowe and a conditional 2020 first-round pick, which is top 10 protected, and a 2027th-round pick to Carolina for a 2026th-round pick. So the 7th and 6th swapping our washes. We've essentially paid a protected first-round pick to get rid of Patrick Marlowe. Um, at the time, we kind of just said this was the cost. If this is the cost, this is the cost. I don't think it takes an incredible GM to shop around the idea of, hey, we want to get rid of this contract. Mm-hmm. What do we need to give you? And to try and play GMs off one another, right, to get an asset. Um, so, you know, the price is the price. It is a steep price, which we said at the time as well. Um, and especially at the start of this year, it looked like it was good that he put the top 10 protection on there. Um, yeah, <laughs> there was a period there where it was like, oh shit, we may actually be in the draft lottery. Um, you know, we might still be, depending on the, how things go, but yeah, that, and that the thing worry is, has assuaged a little bit. We've clawed ourselves out of the hole to the point that um, if we do miss the playoffs, it's going to be, we're going to be in that 11 to 14 range. Yeah. Most likely. So, so know, we're going to forfeit barring the Barring an insanely lucky lottery win. Yeah, like that, that's how it was. But, you know, a good bit of prudence there. And I think it's become much more common to protect your picks. Obviously, this is a big thing in the NBA and has been for a long time. It's only in the last few years that I see it as a routine thing in hockey trades. I wonder a little bit if, um, you know, the pick condition that Ottawa had in the Duchesne trade 
had some influence there, you know, one, because they had it, and two, because um, they probably wish it were better protected. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I, I think that was good. He didn't sign Patrick Marlowe, so he doesn't bear any responsibility for how bad that contract was. So, yeah, my attitude is he did what he had to do. Yeah, I mean, the idea was that the Hurricanes would buy him out and then um, he'd sign with he'd sign with uh, the the Sharks. And for a while, it didn't look like, it didn't look like that was going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the Leafs traded him in the within the first buyout window. That's why this trade happened in June as opposed to uh, July, because the first buyout window ends June thirtieth. Yeah, and, that, and the second buyout window could not have been used for this purpose. So, like this trade had to happen when it did pretty well. Yes, the but when it when it looked like Marla was not going to get signed, it's like oh geez, that's that was a misstep because. Um, trading him in that buyout window means that the Leafs couldn't pay his signing bonus, which to reduce the financial obligation to the team they were going to trade him to, which means that the the, the other party, Carolina in this case, would have demanded more as as compensation for that, right? Um, I guess the way it's worked out, it, it's exactly as planned, although it happened later than expected. But yeah, it's that that could have potentially been worse um, if Marlowe was willing to play somewhere besides. San Jose, uh, or on mm-hmm. California, then it would have been easier. But then again, Marlowe was not required to waive his no-trade clause at all. So. Yeah, he had the leverage there. And I wrote an article about this, and I said at the time, you know, Marlowe has complete veto power over anything you want to do to get rid of his contract. So, you know, we were fortunate that he went along. Yes, Absolutely. very very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, and obviously July is kind of, the busy season for a lot of GMs anyway, but this is definitely the, the busiest month. Uh, the first big trade was Connor Brown, Nikita Zaitsev, and Michael Cartroni to the Ottawa Senators for Cody Cece, Ben Harper, Aaron Luchuk, and a 2023rd. Uh, we were saying beforehand that like both this and the next trade have pick conditions that we totally forgot about. We I totally forgot that we got a third in this transaction, which is kind of funny. But, uh, yeah, I, I think this trade is obviously a good idea in and of itself. You know, we're out of the Nikita Zaitsev contract. Some people are making a big deal about Connor Brown scoring a billion points because Ottawa has to play him on their first line because they don't have that many people. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't regret that at all. Yeah, I mean, Connor Brown, Brown's point know. rate is, even per minute, is still quite good. It's like... A- yeah, in the top he's doing well. 90, but like, one, I think, I'm pretty sure he has a, either a high shooting percentage or a high on-ice shooting percentage. Right. And two, it, what, is Connor Brown, you're going to play Connor Brown over William Nylander or Mitch Marner? Come on. No. I, I wouldn't play him over Kasperi Kapanen. No, and, and that's with Kapanen having a poor year by his standards. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. It's, you know, he's a fourth liner on this team, and that's just the reality, and that's fine. Like, I don't say that to denigrate him. It's just, I've seen a bit of weird gnashing of teeth and or dunking from Ottawa fans. It's like, I'm not mad that we traded Connor Brown. I'm sorry. It's, just, it's like, it's not that important. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, obviously, yeah, the big thing is, like, you're out of the Zaitsev contract. Yeah, and as much as we've crapped on CeCe, um, that's a wonderful deal. I think I think we did amazingly in this, frankly. Um, yeah. Taking back uh, no long-term I, money for, for Zaitsev was a, a good... Very, very good trade, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I, I mean, say what you will, but in a couple of days, Dubas got rid of the by far two worst contracts on the roster. So, yeah, uh, very good. Uh, the next one, trading Nazem Kadri, Kale Rosen, and uh, 2023rd to the Colorado Avalanche for Tyson Berry with 50% retention, Alexander Kerfoot, and a 2026th. This one is iffier. Yeah, We've talked and- a lot about Tyson Berry's struggles, and, you know, they they shed a light on this. That uh, That is not totally positive. I like Kerfoot. We both like Kerfoot, and I think we're both pretty happy how his end of it has worked out. Yep. He's been, you know, there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, he can't regularly play center, or he did regularly play center for the Avalanche. He's been fine at that for us. So... I, th- I think that's done. He'll be our 3C for a while now, and I'm happy about that. He's been, you know, 60% of Nazem Kadri for 60% of the price and longer term now. And I guess we can cover uh, the contract that we signed, uh, or that Dubas signed. Uh, Kerfoot 2 was four years at 3.5 mil. Big fan of that. Long term, uh, very cheap salary. Uh, essentially exact as I said. He's going to be, you know, <laughs> whatever 3.5 to out of a 4.5 percentage of Nazem Kadri is. So that's... He's, he's done that. He's held up that end of the bargain. We're fine. Um, that was good. And we, we were both excited about Kerfoot because of his uh, defensive ability that, that had at least shown up in stats uh, and, like, mm-hmm. RAPM and isolated threat and things like that. Uh, on that front, he's, he's been solid this year, like, slightly above average, which, you know, when you're playing a guy in the third line, you're, you're getting some value there, right? Because normally third-line players are slightly below average. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been totally content, and I've seen multiple third lines work well with him. Uh, we've even seen some experiments with him playing on the left wing, which is, you know, also neat. But longer term, he's a good 3C, and that's good. Barry, um, on the other hand. Oh, God. Um, I feel like sometimes we're too harsh on Barry. and We are, but, because man. Because <laughs> we genuinely don't like how he plays. We've I've said this before. He's what people think Jake Gardner is. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at Barry's numbers... His play driving in terms of shot attempts, Corsi, has been very good this year. His pairing with Riley has been phenomenal. Under Keith, he has insanely good numbers. Do I believe that those numbers are entirely his doing? No. No, not even close. We have a long track record now, uh, you know, prior to the season now, of of Barry being a meh play driver. Mm -hmm. So the 17 games under Keith where he suddenly has a really good expected goals, I'm I'm crediting that more to usage and the forwards that he's playing with than than yeah, anything else. I, I think that that's fair. With, with Barry, yeah. I, I mean, you know, yep. So with Barry, I guess one thing I'd watched an okay amount of him in Colorado, but certainly not enough to be incredibly confident in my decision. And my thoughts on him when the trade happened were that like, you know, the numbers don't look amazing. But he, he's always someone who's popped out on the eye test, right? But then you watch mm-hmm. him on an everyday basis, and you see that, like, yeah, I can see why the numbers aren't amazing, actually. Because he, do, he he he's very soft, right? And I, I typically don't use that word, because I think it's, it's often a pejorative that, that's used to kind of display a lack of manliness and lack of, I'm going to push you for no good reason. Yeah. Um, but he <laughs> is, hockey is a very physical sport, and... He is not physical, and that, and you can be a good defenseman without being particularly physical, but he doesn't make up for it in other ways uh, in terms of 
you know, winning those battles with a stick or with good uh, positioning despite not being overly physical. He just loses those. Yeah. He basically just loses every physical confrontation. And yeah. he's also I, like, incredibly I, yeah. aggressive in his own zone. And it, it, it all sums out to a player who I fully buy into what the stats say. I don't think the stats are missing anything about Tyson Berry. I don't think he's providing value that, you know, things like isolated threat and expected goals or APM aren't really capturing. I think that's just who he is. And watching him, I'm, I'm more confident of that fact now. Yeah, I think, you know, this was a, a little bit of what we talked about with Travis Dermott in terms of because Barry is so obviously so talented and he has a capacity to make wow plays much more than most defensemen, I think it is tempting to overvalue him. And I feel like we did a little bit. You know, I if you told me that Tyson Barry was going to be um, a modest disappointment compared to what people expected from him, I would have said, yeah, that adds up. If you told me he'd be surpassed by Justin Hall, in my own opinion of our right-handed defenseman, I would have been surprised. But I think that that's what happened. So, yeah, I I think that, you know, Tyson Berry is a fine enough player. Uh, You know, you can certainly play him in certain roles in your top four, and it can work. Riley Berry is, in a sense, working. The numbers are good, you know, warts and all, even though... You have plays where the two of them decide to pinch at the same time and stuff like that. But, like, there's no earthly scenario where I want to give Barry what he's going to get on an extension. Yeah. So I, th- I think he's a slightly worse version of Morgan Riley. Yep. Right? So, and that, that puts him... Morgan Riley. Yeah, that puts him at, like, an average-ish defenseman. And I, coming mm-hmm. into the year, I think I put more... I put more weight onto the opinions of people who were confident about him and said, you know what, he's probably a number two. And I, I, I kind of revised my opinion to, okay, weak number two, strong number three. And now I'm kind of revising that downwards to average number three. Yeah. In a very fun package. You know. In a very high offense, high yeah. octane package. Yeah, he he is, you know, again, this is a lot like Riley. He's kind of emblematic of some of the flaws of this team. Uh, I, I've said many times before, I don't love shot-happy defensemen to begin with. But, like, you know, he's... He's a talented and capable guy with some really glaring flaws, and they maybe are even more prone to being exposed on a team that has as many collective defensive lapses as the Leafs do. Like, there aren't a ton of people to cover for him when he plays hyper-aggressively. And so, you know, like on balance, trying to take that trade as a whole, I'm still okay with it, but it's... I mean, I think you could argue we lost it. Insofar we gave as it the it's best player. Insofar as it's positive, it's because of Kerfoot. Yeah, that's the thing is I think Kerfoot has been exactly what was advertised, and that's kind of the strength of the deal. And on an ongoing basis, you know, maybe that'll be worthwhile. Right. It's and that, a close deal, for sure. Yeah, and that was what we wanted out of the deal really like we, we kind of both said even from jump like i think barry's just a rental i don't think we can afford him and as it turned out i don't think yeah. us want to afford him as, as you've said yeah that's the change is we no longer are interested so <laughs> yeah he, he's been somewhat less than i i hoped he was and so my opinion of this trade has gone from quite positive to maybe more guarded but i'm okay with it 
Yeah. And, you know, full disclosure, I love Nazem Kadri. Oh, like, yeah. I just no, I like him a lot, even though we were pissed at him. So it's hard not to be a little sentimental there. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the next uh, one also would so, be controversial. Um, extending Cody CC for one year at $4.5 million. Yeah. So, ooh. I guess go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, okay, so here's the thing we've talked about this. Cody CC had a qualifying offer on the table for $4.3 million. So he was always going to get at least $4.3 million. Unless his agent was an unless, idiot. Unless, yeah. And so if he were to elect arbitration, it was possible for him to go and to get an arbitration award more than that, and almost any number more than that, would have enabled the Leafs to walk away. And then CC gets nothing and probably has to sign on the free agent market for a lot less than $4.3 million. So it made sense for him only to be willing to sign um, or to pick up his qualifying offer. So we were probably on the hook for 4.3. Any way you slice it is my thinking on this. Basically, unless CC was very badly advised or was willing to, you know, go to arbitration on the assumption that the Leafs liked him so much that they'll pay whatever it is. That would have been a dangerous risk. So, okay, I accept the 4.3. The extra 200000 thing, at the time, we were kind of like, well, it's not a lot of money. It's sort of like a feel-good prize. But given how squeezed the Leafs have been this year, we have missed that two hundred grand. You know, that's two hundred grand that maybe lets you be a little bit more competitive in the backup market. It maybe enables you to keep a player that you would otherwise have to maneuver around, which they've now done with long-term injured reserve extensively anyway. But like there was a period there where it looked like for want of two hundred grand, we were gonna have to demote Pierre Engvall or stuff like that. And so, you know, it I actually do think that that is more problematic. I was fine with CC as the price to get rid of Zaitsev's contract. And again, I think we were probably on the hook regardless at 4.3. Yes. But that extra 200k turned it to hurt. Like yeah. it, you know, it 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 mattered. It did. Absolutely. And and just mm-hmm. to hammer one point home, the reason why CC would not want to become a UFA uh, through going through arbitration and, wa- and the Leafs walking away when he gets an award that he would almost certainly get. And I forget what the exact dollar figure th- that the award had to be greater than. But I remember it was like overwhelmingly mm-hmm. likely based on his previous salary and his his uh, time on ice and his previous arbitration awards. But the thing is, he would become a UFA in like September or end of August. There's no money left at that point. Certainly not for term. Even if someone wants to give him $4.3 million, yeah, they probably don't have the space. Yeah. So... Uh, as, as, as you said, unless his agent is, you know, raving mad, we were always on the hook for, for 4.3. That extra 200K, it, it matters. It really does. Um, and look, that extra mm-hmm. 200K matters everywhere. It matters on Austin Matthews' deal, too, if you get him for 11.4 instead of 11.6. But, you know, I, we look at it more harshly when it's a bad player who you, you know, you don't have to appease Cody Cece. To an extent, you have to yeah. appease Austin Matthews. He's critical for the long-term success of your organization. You do not have to appease Cody Cece. So. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, that, you know, the basic conclusion is on some level, they liked him. You know, I think be. Kyle Dubas thought he would be would be useful in some way. And, you know, now we're paying 
a third pair defenseman 4.5. And that's, that is what it is. But insofar as they ever thought he was more than a third pair defenseman, I think that that's a mistake of evaluation. And, and again, I would be curious to know whose opinions weighed into that in different ways. But the fact is that when you're the guy in the general manager's chair, generally you've got to own it. So yeah, I, I think that this was a slight but not non-existent mistake. Like it had an impact. So Yeah. All right, so in the interest of time, I'm just going to kind of breeze through the next stuff that happened in July, right? So he signs various AHL forwards, mm-hmm. including, you know, Pontus Eberg, Kenny Agostino, some other dudes who I don't remember. Whatever, that's fine. Um, traded Garrett Sparks mm-hmm. for David Clarkson. Smart deal. Helps us use maximize our, our use of LTIR uh, with basically the timing of when we have to put players on the on LTIR for in preparation for day one of the regular season. Not worth getting into the exact mechanics of it here, but it essentially allowed the Leafs to get as close to their new upper limit as possible. Yeah, I did actually, this is just an avenue for me to say two things really quick. One, uh, it should be a given that NHL teams understand the CBA and can do complex things with it, but it is not because hockey front offices are still uh, swamps of nepotism. So it is encouraging to me that we have hired people who can do these kind of things and like not screw up. And also that we have a ownership group that is willing to spend considerable amounts of real money um, to make these kind of transactions. Just putting that as an aside. Also, one last other thing, and this is totally unrelated. Some people seem to have believed with this trade that we were just buying cap space, and that's what you do with LTIR. It is not. Okay? There's a specific scenario where when you are already using a lot of LTIR which we were with Nathan Horton, that it can be beneficial to have more. And that's a specific thing. But it's always better not to have any contracts like this at all. And so it is a good thing that Clarkson and Horton's deals are expiring. Yeah. Just wanted to do that as an aside, trying to help catch and not have to explain this for the billionth time. Yes, yes. Basically, I'll try and explain this very quickly. But basically, the mechanics of LTIR mean that you can replace the salary of the player who is injured. So you can never go above, mm-hmm. you know, the actual NHL upper uh, salary limit in terms of healthy players, right? It's just you can replace mm-hmm. the salaries of the players who are missing. In this case, what um, getting uh, what getting Clarkson allowed us to do is to more efficiently, um, more efficiently replace. Eh, what's the best way to explain this? It's to more efficiently. Um, get to the maximum level of salary relief that we could get given the contracts that we had. That's the best way I can put it. Yeah, exactly. It's just uh, the particular way that it broke down is it was more beneficial to be using it to the maximum possible extent. The bottom line with LTIR, the takeaway here is sometimes when you're already using it, it can be beneficial to use more, but it is always preferable not to use it. The Leafs would be in a better cap situation if they had neither Clarkson nor Horton on their books going into the year. It's just once they had Horton, it was beneficial to them to get Clarkson. It would not have been beneficial to them, by the way, to get anyone else. I just hope that that clarifies it a little bit. Okay. Yeah, it's not a hard and fast rule. It depends on the salary structure of the team as a whole and what the rest of your players' cap hit sums up to. Yeah. So, Um, you know, hopefully... I think it's impossible to kind of... 
demonstrate this clearly on uh, an audio format because you kind of need to see the the contracts and i guess if you if you're interested you can play with cat friendly and it'll be more clear but that's the core of it mm -hmm. okay uh we included Andreas Borgman for Jordan Schmaltz just because Borgman did play, you know, a, a few NHL games for the Leafs at one point before being <laughs> replaced for Roman Polak, so that wasn't great. Um, but he's probably an AHL defenseman, so this is more like the AHL moves that we're glossing over. So. Yep, and then August he did nothing except uh, negotiate with Darren Ferris, and then in September uh, that came home to roost with a... Six-year, $10.93 million deal for Mitch Marner. We've talked about this before. It's a bad deal. It's an overpay for a fantastic player, mm -hmm. but it is a bigger overpay than Matthews for a lesser player than Matthews. As good as he is, I don't think that he's worth $11 million. I'm glad to have him. It's fine. He's been really good lately. He's been really good before, though, and we knew that at the time the deal was signed. This is an overpay. Uh, I think Dubas lost this negotiation. Yep. And it's simple. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's hard to argue around that. Um, Marner is a wonderful player. He is, you know, still on pace for like 100 points or something this year uh, on a full 82-game pace. Yes, it's helped by those um that five point game but you can't just throw away a good game right as just as you can't throw away a bad game yeah he's um, like he's a fantastic player there's no getting around it yeah I, I mean i question the use of points to you know completely judge a player uh even a forward and i wrote an article that said like i don't think marner's gonna be on a 94 point pace this year compared to uh, last um mm -hmm. and which so far i guess looks wrong although you know he's a three game point streak away from me being correct so that's not, um, it's not like a completely horrific uh, take. I don't think we'll, we'll see. Essentially, is is, is how that goes. Mm -hmm. um, he had a lot go right last year in terms of his point scoring. This year, it's been similar. Except basically, he scored at like he scored until very recently. He was only scoring at an okay amount at five on five, but he was scoring a ridiculous amount at like every other strength state and not just power play but like three on three he had a ridiculous scoring rate four on four he had a ridiculous scoring rate six on five he had a ridiculous scoring rate so it, it was yeah. a bit bizarre but you know he is a very very talented point scorer so he's his point scoring offense has been more sustainable than i expected i expected him to be around point per game he's at like 1.2 right now so uh we'll see how that goes yeah uh, the, the only other thing that i might note is that i guess with hindsight it's possible this deal ends up looking pretty good if the rest of the RFA class, a lot of whom took like three years or whatever. Like I'm thinking of Matthew Kachuk, who signed for three years at $7 million. You know, maybe, I guess, if Kachuk comes out of that deal in 2022 and then he costs a really spectacularly larger amount of money, maybe, you know, we'll be grateful at that point to have Marner locked up. But Marner was making so much more than anyone who's realistically is comparable. You know, at the time the deal was made, it's an overpay. That's undeniable, and that's just how it is. So, yeah. yeah. And then, in terms of the last like, important move, um, firing Mike Babcock and replacing him with Sheldon Keefe. Yeah, which, you know, everyone expected that when he got the chance, if he got the chance, uh, Dubas was going to want to have Sheldon Keefe coach his team. 
He hired him for the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. He hired him for the Marlies. Now he hired him for the Leafs. It seems very clear that Keefe is his guy. And so I think that that probably means that he bears more direct responsibility in a way for what happens from now on. I do think Babcock and him butted heads and there was some difficulty in removing Babcock for Dubas. So he may not have had a chance to fully implement his vision for what the team was supposed to be. Now he does. We're, we're kind of at the point where it's like, okay, this is now the Kyle Dubas team with all of its virtues and all of its flaws. So, yep. Yeah. So overall, I guess, how would you rate his 2019? It's a mixed bag. I'm going to say uh, above average. I think it was pretty good uh, in general. I don't think that there's any move on there where I'm like, wow, that was stupid. Like even the things that haven't worked out as well as we've hoped or that were more expensive than we hoped or whatever, they're still like defensible decisions. They're just not the ideal outcome. You know, it's like there's no catastrophic free agency contract for a guy who's going to be washed in a year. There's no really lopsided trade that, you know, we look back and we, we cringe. It's just there are a couple of scenarios where we didn't get extra value the way that we would have hoped. Yeah, I did a good but flawed. Um, he's, yeah. He's certainly yeah. not... I think there was some talk of Dubas that was like, this super kid's going to revolutionize the NHL and never make a bad trade. And that was, you know, on its face, something that was not going to happen realistically long-term. Uh, and he's made a few bad mm-hmm. moves. I think everyone makes a few bad moves. Um, I certainly would if I was in that position. And he does mm-hmm. seem to have a couple flaws which involve essentially, at its core, giving out more money than he needs to. He, he, remind, yeah. he reminds me of me when I try and renegotiate my internet uh, deal with Rogers. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Um, I'm not a good no- negotiator. Where eventually I'm just like... Did Darren Ferris just like put him on hold for four hours at a time? Yeah, That's basically. Stupid. Eventually I'm just like, oh, fuck it, I'll just pay what you want. Right, and I, I feel like Dubas basically <laughs> yeah. just did that with uh, with Marner and also possibly with Cece. Um, he he does seem to want to also treat people fairly, which is a quality I respect and admire. It's it's very easy to try and be a dick in these situations, and I, I do think you can be firm without being a dick. Um, mm-hmm. but you do have to be firm, right? And it's unclear whether he he yeah. is that as much as he could be. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's something that he'll develop over time. You know, he is still uh, pretty young, as general managers go, and, you know, you grow into the job like anything else. Uh, he does do a lot of little things that I do appreciate, like, you, you know, with Makaya's injury in New Jersey, Dubas apparently stayed with him um, overnight in New Jersey just to, you know, kind of make sure he was okay, talk him through it, be supportive. I think that little th- stuff like that is good it's it's good in a moral sense it's good for its own sake but i also don't think it goes unnoticed and it probably does a little to burnish the reputation of this franchise and dubas has done a lot of things like that including honoring his promise uh, to josh levo to give him a trade opportunity things like that you know there probably is some some upside to also being a nice guy in that respect and 
I don't want to discount that as having no real value because I think it is worth something, even if I think it also helped him overpay a couple guys. Yeah, pretty much. Um, all right, cool. Yeah, I mean that pretty much wraps up what I wanted to discuss on Dubis. It's I'm happy he's in charge, but he's by no means faultless. Yeah, I wouldn't exchange him for any other general manager in the league. And I mean that sincerely. Like, there's no one that I've been sufficiently dazzled by where I would be like, oh, I'd prefer that guy. It's just, you know, he's not perfect. He's a good general manager. He's built a talented but flawed team. He will hopefully continue to sort of evolve and develop and keep this team adaptable. But he's doing a good job. Yep, uh, I agree completely. All right, cool. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to discuss uh, this this week? No, I'm good. Sweet. Um, so you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and at Fuleman. Do I normally say at a, Do I normally say at AT Fuleman or at Fuleman? <laughs> uh, I think you normally say at AT Fuleman. I'm second guessing myself will here. Figure it out. It's fine. Okay. Anyways, um, (laughs) thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.